You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. So one guy's told, you got to put down that tumbler of whiskey. You've just been elected the prime minister of the UK. I was? Another guy's told, you've got to stop singing so loudly or you'll never be prime minister. I won't? And it's all once upon a time in London, I guess. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Any way you look at it, the UK had a tough go of it in the 1970s. Its economy starts the decade not really growing, a percentage or two. Unemployment is high. And when I say inflation was high, I mean it reaches 17% of the middle of the decade, 1974, 25% the year after. The whole West was taking it on a chin, especially because the OPEC nations we're deciding to restrict oil sales. But as Andy Beckett, author of When the Lights Went Out, says, Britain's problems were the worst of the West. Here's Beckett. All countries have their difficult eras, periods of national embarrassment, of slipping confidence, of decline, of crisis, both real and imagined. But for Britain, since the Second World War, by common consent for decades now, the worst of times came between the election of Edward Heath in 1970 and the election of Margaret Thatcher in 1979. Crippling strikes, four different governments in nine years. You have to consider that Britain is finished, Henry Kissinger tells Gerald Ford, the American president, in a meeting. And nor was this just some American opinion. Sometimes at night, I think, says James Callahan. If I were a young man, I would emigrate. These are strong words coming from the number two official in government. Aside from economic stats, there's the unmistakable voice when you place the needle on the record of Johnny Rotten, the leader of the Sex Pistols, very popular at this time, singing over and over again. No future. No future. No future for me. Lights will go out across the country by accident and on purpose, as part of the government's plan, a three-day work week. Where do you go for relief? In the United Kingdom, then and now, the place where one deals with problems. The people in charge are in a former royal palace. The Palace of Westminster. Look at it. It commands you when you see its foggy visage from the other end of the Thames on South Bank Center, where I was just a few weeks ago. Tourists like me find it unmistakable, so much a part of what you're seeing when you see the city of London, yet its architecture is something that just doesn't exist in many places. It's a retro 1860s Tudor Gothic style. It's a long building. It could fit several U.S. Congresses in there. It has 1,100 rooms. 
And so it was in 2022 when I, as a grateful tourist, got to see it. And so it was in 1975 when the problems reached this riverbank arsenal of democracy. It was completed in 1868 and reflects modern English. Great people have served here. If that's not obvious, if that's not obvious, to greet you as you walk in are statues. First, the statue of Churchill in the park across the street. Oliver Cromwell, as you line up and enter the building, making it clear that this is a palace of democracy, of standing up to a king as much as serving a king. Both elements are represented. As I walk through the entrance to the commons and peers' chambers, there are several statues that maybe some know, maybe some don't. Robert Walpole, the first prime minister. But there's several I immediately identify with. Edmund Burke supporter for American rights, Charles James Fox, who went so far as to wear the blue and buff in the Houses of Parliament during the American Revolutionary War, supporting the American side within Parliament during the war. He's got a statue there. So do both pits. There's a lot of ghosts in this building. Eternal gratefulness for the guide in the building who explained to myself and my wife uh, which statue was Clement Attlee and what he had done. They really are patient staff. They take a lot of time. The security's excellent. Quite an amazing thing to go into a building that, uh, especially during the time we went in it, while the government was being upended and there was a new chancellor exchequer, new prime minister coming. Every day there's a rabble in there and a ruckus. Here, here's And Mr. Speakers, among right honorable friends, on red and green benches. They do this all day and late night sometimes, but still have time to let in tourists, including their American cousins. But back to the 1970s, this building was definitely in flux. And as a member of parliament, it was hard to know where you stood. It starts with Harold Wilson, the labor prime minister, and his silver snowball pipe smoking, seemingly in charge. Up for what should be a pretty dull election in 1970, the polls say that he will win by 12 points. The opposition conservatives are led by Edward Heath. And to some, he seems more interested in yachting and playing the piano than governing. Do you care more about politics than you do about the arts? Well, I love the arts, of course. As you know. <laughs> it's just a very provocative question. I love the arts. Why is he leader? Heath was a loyal inside operator, one of the former whips for, for previous conservative governments. I love the arts, and uh, particularly music and pictures, uh, which are the two things for which I devote most time, I suppose. There was a fluke rebellion that occurs, and Heath ends up getting, getting elected. Members are told to vote for the foreign secretary, and they don't like being told. And so in rebellion, they pick a different minister, Heath. But this is not a high tide of conservatism in the UK. Harold Wilson's immensely popular. Public opinion has taken a turn in the direction of labor. These are a way of, uh, how can I put it, of, of maintaining oneself, of giving oneself depth and experience and um, perhaps a, a spiritual quality. Loses the election in 1966. By the time you get to 1970, it doesn't seem too much better. I love meeting people. Heath told the BBC on a program where later he winced after he was the least bit challenged by a crowd of voters. You see, I've always felt that politics, in fact, is the most exciting thing you can do in the world. 
People felt that Heath walked too fast through the crowds, didn't shake hands long enough, didn't look people in the eye, and sometimes that went for members of parliament as well as members of the public. In fact, Edward Heath uh, himself figures there's no chance conservatives are going to take over the UK. In fact, in his own constituency, uh, he's got a problem because he's got an opponent that's changed his name to his, Edward Heath. So the Conservative Party has got to put workers at the polls to say, vote for this Ted Heath, not the other Ted Heath, please. And that's just for his own constituency seat. All the reporters on election night flock to the current Prime Minister, Harold Wilson. Labor has that 12% lead. Heath is being told he'll be replaced as party leader soon if he loses That was rude, he says in his memoir. If this were, as it might be in an American system, Heath versus Wilson, Wilson would win. But on this election night, good news, he does win his own seat despite the imposter running, and fully aware that he's not going to win the larger election, but at least will remain in Parliament. He sits down with one reporter, and if I were making a movie right now, it could not be a better moment. He starts drinking from a tumbler of whiskey. All the conservative party operators that were helping him in his district are gone. They've gone to London. One reporter stays, and among other conversation, asks him, Ted, didn't they once call you the man of destiny? He looks up from his glass. They did. But that was 30 years ago. Clink. When then a car arrives, and he's told to get to London now. The car radio on the ride gives him his first inkling that the Conservative Party in 1970 is doing a lot better than any polls adjusted. Fact. It'll soon be clear that his party won by 30 seats and he's become prime minister. When he gets there, party leaders, party workers that had been gloomy for weeks are now cheering him and he makes the requested appearance. In the morning, in his London flat, he is told by his maid that somebody named Nixon keeps trying to call. Very intrusive. But the British system does not allow much time. After an election with a clear winner, such as this one, the new prime minister goes right to the queen, at this time, Queen Elizabeth, and is asked to form a government in her name, and they move into Downing Street. Parliament's supreme, and Heath has his 30-seat majority. He's got something else, the element of surprise. In that surprise, he gains an extra power. Far less binding promises to other people, the opponent's are off their game. Wilson doesn't know what hit him. And he's going to spend the next four years trying to get back. Now he's in 10 Downing and he picks a cabinet. He does. And he tells reporters, we've made history in this election and we will make history governing. Go with growth is his altogether reasonable slogan. In London, if someone was staring at you, don't worry. They're probably made of stone or wood. Faces are everywhere in the old masonry and carpentry of buildings. In Parliament, we're talking about wooden faces, wooden watchers, lifelike detailed angels that most 
can't see. I miss them during my trip into Westminster Hall because they're so high up in the air. The roof angels, delicately carved, built by the head carpenter of Richard II. The hammer beam roof at Westminster Hall. They actually have a structural role in the building. The masterful suspension system that for hundreds of years has held the roof up, even with no supporting columns, so that there is a maximum amount of floor space in the hall. And a useful reminder, these roof angels are, that King Richard ruled with God's grace. He was, after all, the first king to demand a term, royal majesty. Their wings, their curved ribs, their shields. Members circulate around this giant palace, conducting their politics. Maybe these things that we see as awesome could remind them of traditions as they make decisions. Or maybe not. Maybe it just like anything else gets old over time. I don't know. I would have to think it's the other way. It's such an old building that recently a 360-year hidden tunnel was discovered within Westminster. It was worthwhile to think about the setting where government introduces its legislation. Consider the former chapel of St. Stephen. That if you watch uh, C-SPAN, see Prime Minister's Questions, or you see it on the BBC or the news, that chamber with the green benches and the speaker, with, and uh, that's a former chapel. And it's kind of more evident when you're inside that chamber, as I was allowed to be recently. Quite a great experience to be in that room where those debates take place and actually get to stand. You're not allowed to sit on the benches, but stand within the benches, to see the dispatch box from which uh, Liz Truss, Boris Johnson, and now uh, Richie Sunak speak, and Keir Starmer of the opposition on the opposite side. Those two gilded dispatch box are pretty impressive. The table, which is a gift from Canada, and uh, it's impressive, and it, it is so much smaller than it appears on TV. When people talk about the lenses of TV making things look bigger, wow. It really is true with that commons chamber. I, I can only tell you that I have no idea how everybody fits in there. Doing a little research, I see that there's been complaints since the 1600s about members not having enough room to maneuver. And for big events, let's say the new prime minister's first prime minister's questions, you could see that there was an overflow going into the hallway of members of parliament. Listen, those aren't tours, those are members of parliament listening the only way they can. And that's what happens in a body of 650 members. But there's even more because across the hallway, one of the first things you go into in the tour is the other chamber, the peers chamber, where the House of Lords meets, the red benches. You get to see that too on the tour. The House of Lords is actually a bigger body. It's over 800 members of the House of Lords, of any democratic institution that I'm aware of. In the room, they have debates in the Lords. The House of Lords considers legislation. They put a lot of time into their duties. They look at aspects of questions. They make recommendations to the House. They can delay legislation. They're limited in the amount of time that they can delay legislation. Their powers are very limited in that aspect, they must consider every piece of legislation that the UK Parliament considers. There is no party that controls the House of Lords 
There are conservative and labor members, but neither as a majority. There are more liberal Democratic members in the Lords than there are in the Commons. Uh, and then there are non-party members, crossbenchers, and then there are bishops, and they have a section and participate in the House of Lords. So it's uh, it's not quite as powerful as, say, the U.S. Senate, but it has a consideration role that's uh, pretty important. We are determined to get steadier prices. Now, I believe that the proposal we put forward uh, for a £2 a week across the board increase for everybody, giving up to 260 in earnings, was a very fair proposal indeed. He'd love a few choices, though he's not going to change the world. He's a get-along conservative. We can cut taxes, sure, trim regulation, sure, be more forceful with those unions, encourage business, but let's not rock the boat. Heath has experience with this after the war when fellow conservatives are attacking the Labour Party for starting national health. He was somewhat okay with attacks, but when conservatives started saying that Labour, under the then Prime Minister Attlee, was going to start a Gestapo and start rounding up citizens, he cringed at those type of attacks and wondered if he could keep being called a conservative. Fortunately for him, in the 1950s, the consensus of the party, including really when Churchill comes back as prime minister, and certainly with Eden and Macmillan, is that you didn't rock the overall boat so much. Basic structure would be left there. Education support, welfare support, healthcare support. Here's Beckett. At Oxford, Heath had read John Maynard Keynes. He was barely 20 when he read the general theory, but it helped convince him once and for all that neither socialism nor the pure free market could provide the answer. Another influential book offered a formula, The Middle Way, by Harold Macmillan, then a young conservative MP, was the other work to have a decisive impact on Heath. It argued that capitalism needed to be reformed to make it fairer, more efficient. Yet unlike in the Soviet Union, Macmillan's version of a planned economy, free enterprise, and the freedom of the individual would not be abolished, but strengthened. Now Heath's education minister at the time, Margaret Thatcher, is a little more willing to change. Hitherto, governments have taken away too much in earnings. They've talked about government expenditure, public expenditure. Governments have no money. It's taxpayers' money. She earned the title, the Milk Snatcher, for ending free milk programs in schools. But she's a bit player, and most observers see her as in lockstep with Prime Minister Heath, a close ally. She either sees no reason to be otherwise, or telegraphs nothing. In her remarks, she insists the former. She was pleased to be at this time more of a go-along-to-get-along member. But Heath is able to get significant, these significant changes done. He will regulate union conduct with the Industrial Relations Bill passed with great opposition from the Labour Party. Despite 250,000 labor union members protesting in London, it becomes law. The government cuts interest rates as well and loosens regulations on banks. GNP grows 4% in 1973. And really, in the first two years of Heath's administration, he is looking up. Um, this guy wins by a surprise, man of destiny. And... Things are getting better, at least on the employment and growth fronts. But there are problems. In the very next year, labor problems, factory investment issues, energy supplies. Britain had to import more. Imported goods are higher and inflation rises. 
So we're getting economic growth, but it's coming with higher prices. These are things I used to talk about in the abstract, right? From 2006 to about 2021, I would just talk about inflation and rising prices in the abstract. Now, we know what this kind of thing is. More of that later. So then he goes into spending cuts and the 73 oil crisis finishes off the Britain's boom. Worse, the coal miners are seeing what OPEC is doing with oil and Britain's domestic coal miners are saying we can make our own demands. Heath takes over negotiations personally. Maybe he can cut a deal directly with the heads of the union. And I think everybody in this country, practically everybody in this country, would agree that no government has tried harder in the past three and a half months with the employers and with the unions to get a voluntary arrangement. But he's not getting much of anywhere. Why can't you pay us? What are you paying the Arab nations for oil is the response he's getting. And in one meeting, the prime minister has no real answer. Heath now puts restrictions on home heating and lighting. No lighted soccer match throughout the nation. Speed limits at 50 miles per hour. Civil servants are now working in cold offices. In one large building, the Environment Ministry, very fitting. There's no carpeting on the floors, and it's extremely cold. The workers are given carpeting to put on their shoes. You hear stories like this all around. His very education minister, Margaret Thatcher, is at a party with friends in her constituency in Finchley, north of London. And uh, they have to turn the lights out during the party. And they're all given like candles. They're walking up the steps in candles. And these are conservative party members. These are pro-business guys. And they're not used to kind of uh, restrictions coming from the government. And they turn to the Thatchers and say, what are you guys doing? He's got other problems, Heath does. Uh, the decision to join the EU or not, very divisive. Heath is pro-Europe, and he's got an opening now that Europe is more accepting of the UK, where they weren't in the 1960s. And he's got the Northern Ireland situation, which inflames and gets violent during his watch. Not only that, in 1974, emigration from the UK rose while birth rates fell. This declined the UK's population during the decade. Foreign investment in business went down. Um, and maybe that could be seen as a good thing. More Britons are owning their businesses. But at this time, it really wasn't. It just reflected there was no economic opportunity to benefit from for a foreign company to get into. Housing prices fall and fall. And so does the British stock market. Pawnbrokers are reporting a very brisk business. What can you do? Eventually, but weekly, get along Ted decides... He's got to stop negotiating with miners and is going to blame the miners for the troubles. He calls an election, goes on TV. We've started a job together. With your will, we shall go on and finish the job. And his speech is paraphrased as, who controls Britain? The time for strife has got to stop, he says. Only you can stop it. Journalists are the ones that come up with a better slogan than his own campaign can. Members aren't necessarily uh, happy about this calling of an election, but what many conservative party backbenchers, those who aren't in government but who are members of the party, wanted was for him to go to war, and that wasn't who Heath was. 
He kept negotiating with miners. One of his own speechmakers in a public article says that here's what he's worried about. Um, he doesn't want the conservatives to win a huge majority. Why? Because he thinks he might be out. And plus, they might force him to do policies that the more liberal Heath doesn't want to do. So in a speech where he was expected to bash the miners, he had already kind of put it at their doorstep when calling the election, he now says that his government pay board will examine the claims that the miners are making. Conservative backbenchers are furious. There had to be a sense of crisis to win this election. Thatcher's hearing it from her constituency. Beat the miners. See them off. And it's really a terrible election campaign because Heath looks both cruel and not cruel enough at the same time. The classic way to describe Heath, and he's somebody who doesn't get a lot written about him, I guess, because uh, as the story will tell, his successor in conservative politics is Margaret Thatcher, and that's a much shinier object to talk about. He only had three and a half years as prime minister. He wasn't always successful. This is a not a time for successful politicians. He himself was politically, particularly for the conservative party, liberal, but his appearance was very much a Tory, very much a conservative. He appeared like a snob to many. And he, running against a guy, Harold Wilson, smoking a pipe, seeming very working class, that couldn't be a bigger contrast. Meanwhile, that's not Heath's origin story as he comes from, his mother was a maid, his father was a, you know, not very rich, but he doesn't show it. In fact, he shows the opposite. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. 
He's also got a problem with a right winger, Enoch Powell, who had made such racist anti-immigration comments. I mean, talking about rivers of blood in the UK if we let various immigrants in from British Commonwealth nations, that he has to kick him out of the party, and he does. And that leads to not only is Enoch Powell now supporting the Labour Party publicly, um, which he never had done as a right-wing conservative, but he's got about 15 members of parliament who are still in the Conservative Party who are kind of sitting on their hands in this election now. Not only is Enoch Powell happy to see Heath out, but so is Ralph Harris, um, the head of the Institute of Economic Affairs. This is a free market think tank lobby advocacy group. He's an economist who wanted Heath to lose. The IEA would have talks, lunches, biscuits and coffee sessions with members. One of the people they have over quite frequently is Margaret Thatcher. The coffee talks would be informal but practical. Meetings were held at his Georgia house on Lord North Street, the K Street of London. We had a good table, cooked lunches, refusals were rare. A member who voted the wrong way might be summoned for some badgering in another lunch. To be clear, Ralph Harris at this time thought that his revolution in a place like Britain, slowly but surely, and over decades, maybe sometime in the 90s, you know, you'll see a change. He has no normal reason to vote for the Labour Party, but in this election, he says, I voted Labour. He even gets a few less donors because of it. Oh, there's some other things, embarrassing leaks, a newspaper story that kind of shows that the claims of the miners for more pay isn't really that much and that the government agrees with it. Some documents are leaked and that turns out to be false, but the falseness of it doesn't come out till after the election, all of these kind of things. In the end, more Britons vote conservative than they do labor. But there's also a third party, the Liberal Democrats, that take a million votes from the Conservatives, if not more. Their charismatic leader, Jeremy Thorpe, has some very bright and attention-getting TV commercials during the campaign. Conservatives win the election. They get more votes, but they win less seats in a way that the Parliament seats are distributed. And it is a hung Parliament. No one has a majority for the first time since the 1920s. So whatever happened, the answer to the question of who governs Britain didn't seem to be Heath, but it wasn't quite Labour either. He tries to form a coalition government. This hadn't been done since the 30s. Tries to form a coalition government with um, Jeremy Thorpe and the Liberal Democrats. They truly aren't interested as a party, and Thorpe doesn't think that Heath is popular enough to go into coalition with. He says, maybe... If you step down as prime minister, I might do it. Now, we talked about when there's an election in Britain, normally prime minister leaves and a new one takes over. Well, Heath doesn't leave right now because he's he thinks he still has a chance to form a government. And uh, Thorpe is in his country house while the press is outside his country home thinking he's there. Walks across his field and his neighbor's farm to get to a distant train, takes the train into London, and secretly gets into 10 Downing Street to meet with Heath. It's a nice little maneuver. But they get nowhere. The talks get nowhere. Not only is the Liberal Democrat Party not interested in coalition, but Heath's own Conservative Party isn't too fond of it. By default, the Labour Party, which won more seats, though not a majority, becomes the governing party. Harold Wilson is back in as Prime Minister. 
He'll only get till October, a very quick time, from February to October 74. So there's two elections in 1974. He is able to quiet down some of the mining, uh, some of the labor issues, being a labor prime minister, having good connection with the trades, although as we'll as Britain will see in the 70s, just being a prime minister of the Labour Party doesn't give you automatic ability to tell the unions what to do. In fact, sometimes as as they reach James Callahan's prime ministership, it'll be quite the opposite, quite the opposite. They'll get quite tired of the Labour Party. But right now, he's able to maneuver some. And then in October, there's that second election, and Heath clearly loses this one, and Wilson gets a majority, just of three but still a majority. Now, Conservative Party now has lost two elections in one year. They're embarrassed, and many expect that Heath will resign, but he does not. The UK is deciding whether to go to Europe. He's still a principal figure on the pro-Europe side. He believes that the country will eventually call on him to become prime minister. Many in the Conservative Party think it's time to go. Uh, the UK Spectator, a conservative journal, said, you know, is actually celebrating that the conservatives lost the election. The squatter in number 10 will now go. They don't consider him a real conservative. As we referenced, there's a great number of rooms, 1,100 rooms in the Palace of Westminster. And there are publicly visible rooms. There are also offices and conferences rooms and conference rooms. There are libraries for members that overlook the town. The speaker lives here in Westminster and has a residence. Then there are several eating establishments. After all, this is no joke. There's 800 plus lords and 650 members, plus guests, plus members of the press, the press that must be fed. There's a stranger's bar, which is where members of parliaments can bring a guest this is also the case with the Churchill Room. The members' dining room opens at noon or 12 and stays open till 11.30 at night. It tends to be open late if Parliament's open late. Compare this with the tiny U.S. Senate mess, where I did get excellent Yankee bean soup, but it was in a very tiny spot. Members' dining room is members only except on certain days. There's the Moncrief Bar for the press, the dispatch box, all in all, eight bars and 23 points of service for food and drink. MPs, lords, and the tens of thousands of press, lobbyists, former members who have passes. It ought to be a pillar of the English Constitution, so a political reporter said of Annie's Bar, which existed a staircase above the House of Commons, in the Parliament building, and named for a barmaid who was long since passed away. Annie's was a place where Churchill might have gotten a tumbler between votes. Though damaged in the war, it was closed for a time, and rebuilt in the late 60s by the publisher Robert Maxwell, who then owned a concession company. It's quite popular. Since journalists were allowed in Annie's, members could have a drink on their expense account. Cabinet ministers and players on the stage, said one journalist, 10 minutes earlier, were now drowning their sorrows and sharing their wisdom with journalists and new members and the no-hopers who are just not going to ever be in government, or those who are per perpetual rebels, 
were Annie's best clients. In the 70s, Annie's plays a role with labor and very small majorities. Every vote or division, as they call it, was hard to gauge. Annie's was as good as any place to judge how the action in Parliament was going. All you had to watch was how often the leadership whips were sent up to Annie's to pull members out to find them to get them to vote. I saw fights aplenty, one journalist said. I was even sucker punched once. But there was also camaraderie. The rule in Annie's was the same as anywhere in the Parliament building. Not a word that is said there can be printed in the paper or said on television or discussed without that member's consent as uh, a well-known political reporter who would get a bar in Parliament named after him after his death said, Annie's was a horrible place to get a scoop, but a good way to get a sense of things. Once, when a shadow secretary called a reporter to say, He had had enough of the shadow leader, the opposition leader, and he was quitting his post. And the reporter printed the story. It embarrassed the Labor Party in the newspaper. But it was two Tory members, two conservative members, who got in the face of that reporter. Didn't matter if it helped their party. You broke the rules of Annie's bar. No, 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 the reporter said. Uh, He gave me consent. But you knew he was drunk, and you printed the story anyway. You shouldn't have done that. Annie's is long gone, but the legend lives on. Tories who opposed Margaret Thatcher spent plenty of time there escaping from whips. And wet Tories, those Tories who in the 80s were more moderate, Kenneth Clark might be seen an example, had a different opinion than the party on Europe, would see a visit to Annie's as a form of rebellion. Clark could be seen there quite a bit. So could Labour leader Neil Kinnock who is known to have a time there after copious pints of ale. He'd take to singing Welsh rugby songs. People would run up just to hear him. Oh, land of my fathers. One time the singing got so loud that the speaker sends up a note to Annie's bar that it was being heard and was disrupting the debate in the commons chamber. They do get Kinnock to stop, but not before singing a couple of verses. Gulad. Eventually, Neil Kinnock, who does have some aspirations here, he's leading a party, uh, his men are going to decide maybe it's a not a good idea for a future prime minister to be coming up to Annie's bar and singing so much. And uh, his visits to Annie's do reduce. What's the point of all this? And I, I want to be careful here because I don't want to present an image that uh, while I might uh, join in some of the humorous moments, there's books full of these things. And, you know, it's not it's not to make fun of the system to call everybody a bunch of drunks. Um, America has a long history of its Congress being a group of people sipping bourbon in the Speaker's office. You know, there's all these things. The reason it's important to understand that there's a lot of rooms, almost secret rooms, where members can get away where they can meet, where they can politic, where they can organize. There's a lot of places to get into trouble, (laughs) and sometimes actual trouble. In 2013, a Labour member headbutted a conservative colleague after drinking a lot of red wine and screaming, there are too many Tories in this bar. But mostly, I mean, there's a lot of place to get into political trouble, to form coalitions, and to do so without leadership hearing. 
And so in 1974, when there's this second conservative party loss and Ted Heath does not feel the need to step down, discussions start in some of these rooms, both places of drinking and otherwise, both in Westminster and not. People talk to people. And you have the 1922 committee, the voice of the backbenchers at the time. You've been hearing that a little bit in the news recently because of what was going on with the uh, with uh, Boris Johnson and Liz Truss's resignation. 1922 is the year that uh, conservatives come to power. But at this time, it's a little more of an informal backbenchers, those not in the government's group. But... Uh, the 1922 committee reports to Heath, look, you're going to have to run this by the members. You can't just stay on as leader. You're going to have to get reelected in some form. Okay. Heath says, and what his people will say to the 1922 committee and to the press is, that's fine. We have the votes. Heath will remain leader. And although a leadership elections, it's normal to have a few rounds of voting before there's a winner. We'll win on the first ballot. It's a gutsy call. Maybe too much. Because now Ted Heath is seen at some of the parliament bars himself buying drinks for MPs. To make sure of where he stands, perhaps. The members take the drinks, that's for sure. But are they really for him? He has dinners in the dining room. And people are seeing all of this politicking it. Looks crass to some. A prime minister calling votes this way? And the members he takes to dinners, according to a few of his own supporters, some of them say they feel a little awkward about the whole wooing thing, and they're not sure they're voting for him. But he thinks he's got them. Fantastic dinner with me. They're on board, he tells his aides, more or less. Now, in some cases, he is getting a few votes. Newer members, those who came in in the election of 1970, where Heath was leader, or in the most recent elections of 1974, where Heath was leader, and they were a member of parliament who got in even if the rest of the party lost. Some of those newbies, freshman class, they're looking at it and saying, well, he's the leader we got. I was elected with him. It's safer not to change. Enter Ari Neve, a colorful character, two times a prisoner of war of the Germans. One time he escaped. Now a member of Parliament. Heath and Neve did not like each other. Indeed, Heath tells him at one point he should resign because he disagreed with leadership, and Neve does not. Neve is in these various rooms of Parliament and elsewhere, beginning an anybody but Heath campaign. But he's quiet about it. He's a free market disciple. He's also for going rough on the IRA, rough on Northern Ireland Catholics. He'll end up the victim of an IRA car bomb in 1979. But this is a few years before, and he'll first play a role in politics. He's meeting with members one-on-one, -on -one, having dinners with people. If a hard time finding someone to run for the Conservative Party leader position, to take on Ted Heath, directly. And Heath people know this. But nonetheless, Neve continues with his anybody but Heath campaign. And they have a lot of members who are saying, he's got to go. And Neve will say, well, do you want to run? 
And they'll say no. And Neve uses that to his advantage. Well, don't you feel guilty for wanting the man to be gone, but you don't want to do anything? You don't want to lift a finger against him? Even some liberal members, there's about 20 of them, don't agree with Neve's politics, but want Heath to go. Anyone who has been in Parliament a long time, but hasn't gotten a ministerial job or a deputy job out of it, a backbencher, as they're called, because they sit in a back, in the back of those green benches, away from the government, they're more likely to vote against Heath. Margaret Thatcher, Heath's former education secretary, and she tells her own local paper and her constituency of Finchley in the north of London, they won't elect a woman prime minister. The first prime minister, woman prime minister will have a very difficult time, and I do not want to be that person. But she does tell Neve this. She would run if nobody else stands up against Heath. This is all good and just noted because Keith Joseph, the conservative critic, does eventually agree that he will run. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. From Charles Moore's biography, From Grantham to Falklands, one person who saw what was happening was Gordon Reese, the public relations guru who advised the conservatives on their party political broadcasts. He had noticed watching clips of unused party political broadcasts from the 1970 election how Thatcher dominated the screen when she was on it, came to know her better, and by December 1973 had decided she was the answer. After the October 1974 defeat, Reese told Thatcher that there was a unique opportunity for a woman leader. She told him, however, she was backing Joseph, Keith Joseph, and urged him to offer him televisual skills. 
Uh, Reese went to interview Joseph the following day and asked sort of penetrating personal questions. For example, how much is your family supporting your candidacy, which he thought television interviewers might wish to pursue? Joseph displayed as Reese saw it, visible unease with cameras. Reese told him he could win the party leadership contest, but never a general election. Joseph said, I think I agree with you. So Neve, Gregory Howe, sometimes Thatcher, continue the quiet campaign. Isn't it time for a change? Do you want to keep losing to labor to Harold Wilson forever? Do you want this Ted and Harold show to continue? And, oh, by the way, Heath is intriguing. He doesn't want our party to win. You saw that he had that meeting with Jeremy Thorpe and the Liberal Democrats, the third party. Why? Because he's one of them. Here's what Charles Moore says. Neve, who loved skullduggery and backstairs work, saddled up to people in the corridors of the smoking room and told broken-down backbenchers that Mrs. Thatcher admired them. One trick he used on John Farr, a fairly typical example of the genre, was to say, Margaret assumes you must have turned down a job offer from Ted. Farr, why? Neve would say, oh, because you so obviously should have one if you want it. Since Mrs. Thatcher had a reputation for naivete, it did her no harm that her campaign manager had a reputation for the opposite, which was linked with rumors that he had worked or even worked still for the security services. According to Joan Hall, who had been an M. Harry Neve would always clutch to the wall, never walk down the corridor straight, whereas Mrs. Thatcher was very practical and straightforward. Although Thatcher gained much of her impetus and her nucleus of support, from Keith Joseph and members of the Economic Dining Club, Neve did not much concern himself with these. He concentrated on the men who sat in the smoking room and grumbled. Men like M.P. Robin Cook, little known then and forgotten now, but men whose vote needed to be won. He also made the most of his acquaintance with Humphrey Atkins, Atkins, the chief whip, supposedly neutral in the contest, but actually inclined against Heath. We don't have all the transcripts of all the discussions of what they were telling members. Of course, none of this is known, but some of it could be, let's take the party, Keith may be prime minister, we'll give you exposition that you wouldn't have had with Heath. Some could be playing off just the bitterness of slights. Isn't Heath rude to you? And according to a few Heath supporters, years later, there might have been hints or direct statements of some of the personal that in 1970s Britain, he was secretly a gay man. This is something that was rumored about Heath. He's been a bachelor, but throughout his life, he never addressed it. If these discussions were brought up, and it's not something omitted by Thatcher or Neve at the time, Heath, though, continues to be confident, plotting, buying drinks at Annie's, and telling members how great it must be to meet him, more or less. The Heath team looks at the lack of a candidate. He misses the private campaigns that are going on. And when Neve and others say things like, forget about who is running. Someone is taking on Heath. You want him out or not? It's not as visible to Heath, who thinks he's probably going to win this election. This is how Margaret Thatcher's accounts of events go, that the Keith Joseph summons her. 
he had made this speech in Edgbitson. And I think, you know, some of the content of the speech might actually be more closer to conservative politics today, but it's attacking collectivism and doing it in a certain cultural way. And the press is just hounding him about it. He's not very sure anyway. Neve is starting to get mad at Joseph because he's so wishy-washy. Uh, Heath's people aren't afraid of Joseph. They're pretty sure they'll beat him. And um, he summons Thatcher and says, you should run. Now, Thatcher is the candidate. He feels betrayed by his former education minister, but you can't say this shakes the ground at Westminster. Heath doesn't think she'll win. And even Heath's bitter enemy, former conservative Enoch Powell, who didn't like Heath at all, said they'll never elect that woman, not with her accent and her hats. Yet on the first round ballot at the Conservative Party leadership contest, it's exactly what happens. Thatcher wins the vote, 130 to 119. Now, that's not enough of a win. That's 11 votes. You need more than 40. There'll be a second round. Because there's still a candidate that got 16 votes. Uh, Later, when a reporter tries to remember what he was running for or why, he doesn't even remember himself. There's 11 people who abstained in the vote. You know, there's still votes available for Heath to get. But Heath had said previously that he'd win on the first ballot. He's embarrassed and politically, he's finished within the party. Even he sees that now. Here's the New York Times. Former Prime Minister Edward Heath, 10-year leadership of the Conservative Party, came to an end last night. The results surprised most politicians. Miss Thatcher, a favorite of the right wing of the party, edged out Heath by 11 votes. Today's vote was difficult to read. Many of the Thatcher votes were stop Heath votes. The article from February 1975, when the election occurs, also mentions that now Willie Whitelaw will run against Thatcher. Whitelaw is an ally of Heath. He's the chairman of the party, and presumably he'll win the election. Certainly over in Downing Street, Prime Minister Harold Wilson, making a prediction about his rivals, said, they'll never make that woman leader. Whitelaw will win. A week later, both the Tories and Wilson are proved wrong. Thatcher beats Whitelaw by more than 42 votes, enough to win outright and become leader. She holds an immediate press conference. Did you win because you were a woman, they ask. I'd like to think that I won on merit. And as she leaves, the way that she's, the room is configured, she sees an opportunity to say something, and now I will take a turn to the right. This all happens, amazes everyone. Now, what really happened here? Fortunately, there's a study done. We know some of this. In Comparative Politics 1981, Cowley and Bailey, they interviewed members. Not all remembered why they voted. They also grouped members based on their politics, based on how they voted, if they ever rebelled from the conservative government of Heath. Were they members of the conservative clubs within the party? The 92 Club, the Monday Club. Where'd they come down on Europe, immigration, Rhodesia, which was a uh, an issue at that time. The demographics, newer members, they tended to support Heath. Longer standing, supported Thatcher. Southeast England members tended to vote for Thatcher. In port, uh, Cowan and Bailey found, because the Conservative Party then and now, in its regional support, draws support from the south of England. The southeast, really. Heath is from the north. 
But ideology is also a factor. More conservative-leaning conservatives voted Thatcher. Some of them that were still going strong in 1990 and were right-wingers were among those who voted for her in leadership at this time. Here's what Cowan Bailey said. The orthodox account of this story, about Thatcher wins the leadership, is that dislike of Heath was high. And the right wing took that, in a sense, and called it ideology. Ideological factors are downplayed in traditional accounts of what happened in 1975, but Cohen and Bailey disagree. They find that the biggest factor in many votes between Heath and Thatcher are indeed political issues, ideology. Another way to say it, the conservative party was just that. They happened to have a more liberal person in leadership, maybe more in line with the 1950s style of conservatism, and they're ready to turn right particularly after the 1970s situation, which showed itself. Inflation, strikes. It's not really clear in the run-up between Thatcher winning this leadership contest and then the 1979 general election that the conservatives are going to win. In fact, many think that if James Callahan, who becomes prime minister after uh, Harold Wilson, Harold Wilson is, is very sick, in his uh, second term in office, James Callahan becomes prime minister. He's got a much stronger relationship with the unions. He bickers with them at times, but he's also able to control them. He, he has been able to control them more. But even he's getting tired of the amount that they're asking for, particularly when inflation starts to go down from where it was to just about 8%, and you still have unions asking for 16% increases. And Callahan, the labor prime minister, makes a rule. Let's just, that's it. We're, you're not getting any more than five. No one knows where this came from. The unions say this is a non-starter. We're not even going to negotiate. We're not even going to start talking at five. Where'd this come from? Callahan's pretty insistent on it. And uh, so you've got kind of two parties by the time you get to the end of the 1970s, fighting with the unions. But even then, conservatives are down in the polls. Callahan's are very popular. A lot of people feel that if Callahan were to call the election earlier, maybe in 1978, probably would have won it out. Instead, he waits to the longest time possible to where he constitutionally has to call the election. You enter the winter of discontent. Unions start a very difficult series of strikes. Where will the major cuts be? Will they be in health, in education, well, social security? Start off with one thing. You make it sound as if that were totally impossible. You know, when the IMF came in and looked at Mr. Healy's profligate spending, they said, Mr. Healy, if you want to borrow money from the IMF, you've got to cut spending. And you've got to cut it by something between two billion and three billion. And he did. Think one you moment. Want to know how you one do moment. So there is evidence that it is not impossible. He was, did it when he was told to. We told him he should have done it before. Now let's go and have a look at some of the things. This particular government has increased the amount available to the National Enterprise Board from one billion to four and a half billion. We think that's for backdoor nationalization. They haven't put in their manifesto 1,000 million pounds to 4,500 million. That's a colossal increase. And Thatcher's conservatives are elected in 1979 to the surprise of many. We've discussed enough in this podcast where there's not 
a need to discuss what happens next, but I think just to summarize, I mean, Thatcher's going to break the trade unions as it's as you know it in um, and there, and certainly their role in controlling the politics of the country in a series of battles, strike battles in the in the nineteen eighties, among many other policies. Um, no time to discuss them all. It's 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 a definite, noticeable. No one would argue that there's a complete change in the policies of the country between the nineteen eighties and the nineteen nineties. I find it interesting for this simple reason. This um, this story, and it's the role of inflation and how it changes democratic governments, at least by the example of the last time that we had it. And if you look at both Britain and the United States, high inflation is going to lead voters to more conservative solutions. The prices going up scares voters, simply said. It tends to scare voters from the political actions that are most beneficial to more liberal governments, namely government spending. But now, whoa, 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 that's going to cause prices to go up. Whatever theory they use, and there's different ones, one is that the government crowds out either money or goods and increases their price, or it's using more oil using more energy supply. So all of these things. So you see both in, um, say, Carter in the 1980 election and Callahan Thatcher in the 1979 election, and just the rise to power of Thatcher at all within the conservative party is that people become more willing to, to go in a direction that they weren't, to adopt a figure that's more unusual, or if you're on the left side of politics, you might say scary or bad, because high inflation is a kind of political high gravity that kills off very ambitious government programs or spending. And it's in, if at all possible, if it's in any liberal-minded politician's interest to end inflation as soon as possible, it's not a good place for a lot of what people on the left more often want to try to do. I also think it's always good to learn about politics across the pond, as it were, especially at a time where so much of their news is becoming our news because of all the kind of crazy political events that were going on there at the same time that uh, I happened to be there. A final story that I must relay Edward Heath does something interesting. Most prime ministers, when they're no longer prime minister, Thatcher included, you know, obtain a ceremonial title. Uh, Very often, the House of Lords is where they'll go. This is offered to Edward Heath, but he wants to stay right in the Commons, especially after he's defeated his leader and after Thatcher becomes prime minister, one of her biggest backbench critics will be Heath, who has no compunction about speaking out against his policies. It's called, by many people, the Incredible Sulk. Indeed, when Thatcher then loses a conservative leadership election in 1990, the same thing that happened to Heath, Heath greets the news warmly, even after all this time. 
Here he is on BBC. Because it was said that you um, rang your office and said, rejoice, rejoice. I said it three times, I think. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. As always, I want to thank you for listening, and if you like the program, please tell someone about it. Writing a review on Apple Podcasts is a great way. Voting other reviews, helpful or not helpful, is is another great way to really help out the program. Thanks for listening.